Hello, friends. Welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. Oh, all right, my friends. Welcome back to Wednesday Wake Up. Thank you so much for coming back and joining us in community. Very happy with the last few talks we've had on the aggregates. I was kind of I think I mentioned, I don't know if nervous is the right word, but just leery of diving in because it's it can be so complicated. But I, I feel like it's been going well and I've been learning a lot just about how to present the material. So I'm excited to talk about the body today. We About six months ago, I think we did a set of talks on the body and body breathing and breath energy. So tonight we'll do something similar, but we're going to do it from the aggregate perspective. We're going to do it from the perspective of why... The beginning stages or the beginning practices of vipassana include the aggregate in why we practice body contemplations so that's where we're headed today and i hope this will fill out the last few talks for us um yeah we'll see we'll see how this goes i think this is going to be helpful so once again i'm going to ground us in the lo- the gps of the aggregates uh, reminding us that the aggregates are listed as one of the causes of suffering in uh, traditional Buddhism, and the aggregates are also listed as objects of contemplation in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. So they are absolutely essential to practice, absolutely essential to practice. And the aggregates are, drumroll, form, feeling, perception, fabrication, or formation, whatever word you like there, and consciousness. Form, feeling, perception, perceptions, the labeling, the recognizing and putting something into familiar categories, that's perception, fabrication, the process of putting things together that gives us our meaning, and consciousness. So we talked about form, feeling, and perception a little bit last week and how they come together as kind of a karmic stream. And so today we're just going to go right into aggregates. Uh, as form, as body, materiality, or solidity, and why this is so important. And I'll remind you of the three practices that the Buddha encourages us to do at the level of the body, even before we do things like body scanning and some of the other practices you're probably familiar with. We have the anatomical parts. So this is the exercise where you mindfully break down the body and deconstruct it into the actual anatomy. So bones, nervous system, stomach, spleen, that whole type of uh, 32 body part meditation. So that's the anatomical parts, the elements, which is breaking our experience down into earth element, solidity, fire element, which is basically hot or cold, like heat, the heat uh, sense contact, and then water element, which is moisture and movement, and wind element, Uh, which again is usually the breath, but it's also movement as well. So we have our aggregates uh, that are anatomical parts, elements, and then lastly, corpse in decay, which is the visualization practice, the uh, mental fabrication practice in which we imagine our body actually 
decaying like out in the woods is usually how you <clears throat> you how you like imagine it and imagining the concomitant parts like breaking apart and the body dissolving and uh, bones being carried away by animals and it's this whole deconstructive process that works as a visualization so that's the third practice and I wanted to just frame well I'll start here I wanted to say that I think some of these practices tend to be practices that we ignore or we don't do as much. And I think there's some reasons for this. One, I think they're confusing and kind of weird for us to do because who wants to wake up in the morning and imagine their body as a corpse decaying before we go to work? It's just not something that we would normally do. Or at the end of your day, <laughs> uh, who wants to really do that? It just seems strange. And until we do it regularly, we it's hard to see the real beauty and the real wisdom that can arise from that kind of contemplation. So it's just a strange practice. It's counterintuitive, which is what it's designed for. But I think that's one reason that we need to keep coming back to these practices and engaging in them regularly is that we're just, they're just foreign to us. Um, and we need to befriend them, I would say, in order to really feel the wisdom and the, the beauty of them, really, because they're really beautiful when you start getting into them. The other reason I think we don't practice them as much is it's hard to connect them to what we might call the Dharma. It's hard to look at these practices when we come into the Dharma through Vipassana, Anapanasati, the breath, right? Through the Satipatthana Sutta, if we're just looking at breath body and we're doing breathing, when we're looking at precepts, when we're looking at some of the other body sweeping practices, walking meditation, if we're not exposed to these other practices, they seem like adjuncts, right? They seem like caveats or footnotes to our regular practice. So I would invite you again to just consider them to be fundamental. If you're looking at traditional Buddhist practice, these three practices would have been the first three things that a novice monk would do. So imagine you're taking robes and you're just starting your training. And one of the first things you do is be sent to the charnel grounds to watch actual bodies decay. So, you know, this wasn't an, an advanced practice. This is an out the gate practice that is intended to embody the wisdom of Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta in the actual practices. So a couple things I wanted to uh, remind us about these. I'm going to give you a couple different perspectives of why the Buddha thinks these are important and the kind of wisdom that's supposed to arise from these types of things. All three of these practices are designed to wake us up, I would say, out of our unconscious perceptions of the body. Personally, culturally, subculturally, we have a relationship with our perception of the body. And these practices are designed to disrupt that. It's designed to invite us to create a new fabricated experience and relate to the body differently. And in relating to the body differently, that is where the leverage of wisdom arises. So it's designed to disrupt our perception. It's designed to shake up the system and so it is designed to be disquieting. It is designed, not scary, but disquieting, right? Uh, and so it is designed to do that. So that's one thing to remember. Another thing it's designed to do is encourage us to get in touch with the suffering that we have in how we relate to our bodies. Our bodies <laughs> human bodies, right? I mean, we reify them, we celebrate them, we're shamed by them, we get made fun of for our bodies, like bodies, it's like there's body shaming and then there's this glorification of them. We have sex and sexuality related to body. We have so much baggage around 
being embodied, that these practices are designed to disrupt those stereotypes we have of what beauty is, of what sexual attraction is, of what sensuality is. It's designed to flip that on its head and turn those perceptions into an opportunity for awakening. So it really does hit home for us in a way that can be disconcerting. The other thing it does, and all Buddhist practice do this, but as a reminder, the anatomical parts, the elements, and corpse and decay, all in different ways point us to one, impermanence, two, not self, and three, suffering. Anicca, dukkha, anatta. So if you're having trouble with the practices, I would invite you to ask yourself, okay, how do I practice these three meditations in a way that I'm getting the experience of impermanence, dukkha, and anatta tangibly, that you're actually creating this sense that this is the kind of wisdom that's arising for you. And I'll talk about a little bit more about how that's done, but that's another thing just to remember. The last part of this is maybe the most important. These practices are designed to point us towards non-clinging. They're designed to reveal to us how attached we are to our bodies, right? Corpse and decay, that's a great practice for revealing how attached we are to our human form. Breaking our body into anatomical parts, great for looking at the nature of lust, the nature of ego, the nature of beauty, and the impermanent not-self nature, and look at how we cling and how we're averse to different aspects or qualities of the body. So non-clinging is huge in this. And it would make sense that if you're a novice monk and you're coming into practice, that you immediately are asked to do practices that direct you towards non-attachment, that direct you towards insights into not-self, that ground you immediately in the biggest object we can bring into awareness that causes us so much suffering in our life. So that's the main framework I wanted to start with. I want to offer two descriptions that the Buddha has of why, or I should say not why, but uh, the benefit of, of body contemplation, I guess is what I'm going to say. And before I do that, I just want to make one distinction. It is important to remember that many of us have trauma and trauma is stored in the body. And when we meditate, no matter what the meditation, it is possible for traumatic memories to come up. And it's possible that there's just stress and discontent can come up related to trauma. And furthermore, if we already have shame related to body or even significant body issues like eating disorders or physical trauma uh, from abuse, then these three practices may not be the place that you want to start. That being said, many people who have significant stressful or traumatic experiences related directly to the body can find these practices to be really healing because it changes their perspective and their fabrication of body experience and there can be quite a bit of liberation. But I always like to remind people that these practices in particular may not be the practices that you want to start with if you're already struggling with some stuff around the body, some attachment or clinging or because um, for some of us, we need to get back in touch with the body before we can let go of the body. Some of us need to find bodily self-love before we can start looking at the body as impure, as the Buddha says, to look at it 
as concomitants, as a decaying corpse, and so on. So just keep that in mind if you're doing this or you ever recommend it or talk about it with someone. So I'm going to give you two frameworks here. And the first one is recollecting the impurity, and I'll define that in a second. <laughs> that word has so much baggage. The recollection of impurity or lack of cleanliness or lack of beauty inherent in the body. And let me qualify that because that's a lot of that's a lot right there. So, first of all, when the Buddha talks about impurity, what he's talking about in this context is that as human beings, we spend a lot of time denying the lack of cleanliness of being a human animal, right? We beautify the body through our clothing. We decrease certain smells through perfumes and deodorants. There's a whole industry that tells us about how we can look prettier and more attractive and sweet smelling. And this, these practices are designed to rattle that cage, to shake us out of this perception that the only use of the body is to make it beautiful and attractive to ourselves or others, that there's not some other use for the fabrication of embodied being. And the Buddha likes to remind us as a, as a framework that human bodies are essentially dirty, right? We're animals and we smell and we have to clean ourselves. Sometimes there's these reflections that, you know, we, we shower and that's kind of routine depending on where you're living. Obviously not everyone is even privileged to have running water, but if you're in a situation where you can shower regularly, then that's something we take advantage of. We take for granted, right? And what we, what we don't realize sometimes within that unconscious framework is that we don't really focus on the dirty part. We just like, oh, I had a shower, it felt good, and now I'm putting on deodorant and that feels good, and now maybe I've got some other scents that I'm putting on and that feels good. And then we go out into our day and we sort of forget that we're animals. And <laughs> I wanted to just do a little deeper reflection here based on the Buddha's idea of reflecting on the impurity, quote unquote, of the body. And remind you that and this is just from me doing some Googling today because I got I went down the rabbit hole, but I found out today that the human body sheds millions of bacteria every hour. Every hour, human beings shed millions of bacteria, right? And apparently, skin and oils are the food for these bacteria. So when the Buddha says we're impure, this is essentially what he's talking about, that by nature there is a quote-unquote dirty part of the body that we try to be, that we push away, we're averse to, right? We have an aversion to our nature and we try to hide it, conceal it, and to change it. Now, what also I found interesting is that there have been studies that are done that have concluded that human beings are actually the smelliest animals on the planet. We actually have more, <laughs> we release more body odor per square inch than any other being in God's kingdom. <laughs> so if you were wondering, if you are going to arg argue how sweet smelling you are, just remember that studies have now shown that we are in fact stinkier than barn animals. And the reason being, I found, which is fascinating, <laughs> the reason is, first of all, compared to other creatures, human beings release odors from more parts of their bodies than other creatures. And we have so much bacteria that feeds off of us that the bacteria itself, as it's metabolizing and basically feeding off our warmth 
and our water and our oil and our fat and our skin give off odor as well. We mistake it for our own, but it's not our fault. So this is what the Buddha is talking about. Just remembering and recollecting that the human body is, we're an animal and it's not inherently quote unquote clean. And we have an aversion to this. We try to hide it. We don't use it as a meditation. We try to push it away. So that's the first framework that the Buddha offers is just reminding meditators, hey, the body as itself in its true nature isn't always this beautiful reified thing. And we spend lots of time trying to do that. We cling to this self image that we want to be beautiful and clean and sweet smelling. And that's would have been true at the time of the Buddha as well. So that's the first one. The second one that the Buddha offers as a foundation for these practices is using the human body to remind ourselves of the harmful nature of sensuality and lust, essentially. And I'm going to clarify this for a second. So when you look in the Dharma, the term lust is often used for all sensual craving, right? It's kind of a more broad category than we usually use it in the West, where we usually save lust for sexual lust. Where in the Dharma, lust usually is this larger category of all sensual craving, including sexual desire. So we have this, this category where the Buddha encouraged us to remind ourselves that the body is more than lust and sensual desire because we can get so lost in craving for sensuality. We can get so lost in lustfulness. And just to remind ourselves, I know a lot of us come from Judeo-Christian backgrounds when we come to the Dharma. Most of us don't and are not raised up in Dharma settings. And so we may have come from backgrounds where the body was shamed, like spiritually shamed, like the body itself is something to be embarrassed about. The body itself or sexuality is, is some kind of sin or is dirty in, in that kind of moral way. I want to make sure you understand that I'm not speaking in those terms. This is not moralistic. This is about changing a fabrication, changing a perception that leads to the wisdom of anicca, dukkha, and anatta. So it's not meant to be shaming. We're not flogging ourselves over, oh, I have sexual desires, therefore I should be embarrassed. That's not where, where we're headed with this. So one of the things the Buddha reminds us of is that lust, both in the sensual way and in the sexual way, is an agitating and unpleasant experience. What happens with lust is that we often conflate lust with its release. So lust arises, we desire something sensual or sexual, we get that thing or have that experience, that experience is fun and delightful, and we conflate that whole experience with the pleasures of sex or lust. What the Buddha invites us to do is be mindful of the fact that in that moment of sexual gratification, what we're really doing is turning off the negative sensations of the lust. We are actually getting out of a negative state much more than the positive state that results at the end. And it's not seeing that connection, not seeing that lust is not pleasant. It's a very agitating and um, disruptive to the nervous system kind of state that forces us to go try to create the pleasure that we want from the lust. So we, we want to use these 
aggregated processes, these anatomical, elemental, corpse and decay types of meditations to give a different perception of how lust occurs, how it drives craving and clinging, how it creates a sense of identity and use it for liberation rather than just feeding on itself. And what the Buddha talks about is how um, lust can be, oh, I'm going to put this in first, then I'll, then I'll go back. I want to put this in too. It's important to know in the context that I just described that lust can be a secondary motivator. So oftentimes when we are tired, when we are sad, when we are bored, when we are who knows what, sad, bored, discontented in some way, we want to change that state of consciousness and we change that state of consciousness by lusting after a different state of pleasure. And so now what we've done is we've repressed one state of consciousness for a different state of consciousness and it happens so quickly that all we're aware of without mindfulness is I'm lusting after something, right? I've got this longing, this craving to have a particular sensation and we don't even connect that it began with an aversive state, that it began with a state of dukkha. So part of the reason we get into these body meditations is to catch this power of lust in the body at its core, right? At its root, before it starts hatching into these other energies. With our precepts, one of our precepts is to refrain from sexual harm. And our body meditations are designed to decrease lust and to get us in touch with the power of that energy. And it doesn't take, <laughs> doesn't take any science to see that human beings, I would imagine from day one, if there was a day one, that we have been messing up our sexual energy and how we treat each other sexually as long as we've been around. And the Buddha talks about how being mindful of the power of sexual energy is so important because the Dharma is about non-harm. It's about non-harm of self and non-harm of other. And sexual harm is so prevalent in society. Some of the things this connects to through mindfulness are some of the biggies really, which is over-objectifying other human beings, the various forms of manipulation and power struggles that happen, and the use of sexual power, the overindulgence of sensuality and sexual experience to either cover up, like I said, cover up other emotions, or just to go on a cycle of self-indulgence. So this harmful part is something that the Buddha always keeps in mind when we talk about the body. When we do these body meditations, we rarely realize that we are using them to decrease lust, right? We, you're like, oh, I'm going to do a corpse and decay, or I'm going to do an anatomical uh, meditation. The way that these meditations decrease or give us insight into the nature of this sensual craving is that when we desire a sexual or sensual experience or object or however you want to describe whatever that endpoint is it's a certain sensation even that we have to create a fabrication this is where the aggregates come in we have to fabricate that that experience is going to be pleasurable and then we we lust after it and i'll give you an example give you an example uh one of the meditations for the anatomical parts 
is that when lust arises actively in consciousness and you find yourself with a sense of sexual desire or attraction to actually start deconstructing the body of the person that you're finding attractive in that moment and start meditating on their lungs and their liver and their fingernails and their hair and the blood. And as soon as you start doing that, you begin to realize that in that moment of lusting, there was a completely different set of images that you were creating that was feeding and fabricating the moment of desire. So normally we feel desire arising as something separate from us. We don't see our participation in the desire. And remembering that working with the aggregates is about learning about the process behind the scenes, how the process is fabricated and put together. On one of Goinka's retreats, he say, he talks about how he says, um, <laughs> Goinka is so funny. So on one of his retreats, Goinka says something like, um, you know, you're attracted to someone, you're walking down the street and you're attracted to someone and aren't you really grateful in that moment that everything inside their body stays inside their body? You know, it doesn't just leak out all over the place in that moment. And he's like, and aren't you very excited that their body doesn't just like turn inside out, like all of a sudden. And he's like, you know, he's like, how attractive would, would, would they be if suddenly they were inside out? Like we've created a fabrication for the lust. Like we create an image in our head of what it is attractive and in those moments we're not usually thinking about a person's kidneys like that's not really how it works so what the again these meditations are designed to disrupt the unconscious process it's not designed to call it bad or be shameful it's designed to point to the fact that we're creating the lust we're creating the craving by the fabrication of the experience and uh, so the other one that he says, he, he does two more. And I think I did this with you all when I was doing some guided practices on the body a while back. But Goinka says, you're with your partner, you're with someone and oh man, you know, their hair is so beautiful and you're like looking at their hair and you're like, you know, you're touching the hair and it's just so there's lust and it's pleasurable. But later on that evening, you find their hair in your food and you're like, uh, this isn't attractive anymore. <laughs> Earlier, the hair was really attractive, but now you fabricate a completely different meaning to the experience. And now you're like, ick, right? So, you know, he said the same thing. It's like you look at someone's smile and you fabricate this image of like, oh, they have such a bright and glowing smile and their teeth. And you don't see it as teeth. You see it as a perception of smile and you see it as beauty. And then one of their you know, teeth falls out and they hand it to you and you're like, yeah, no, I'm not really interested in the tooth. It's <laughs> the tooth itself. Thank you very much. So these anatomical and elemental meditations are designed to disrupt these stereotypical fabrications we have about reality being a particular way. We're not just longing for things. We are creating the longing in consciousness and then reaching out for the thing that we are creating. So it's a cycle it's a loop it's a feedback loop so i love those goinka those, those stick with me after years like goinka's descriptions of this stuff is so funny i want to give you a few uh of the Pali sutta images that the buddha uses for the detrimental aspects of lust and sexual desire as they're related to the it as they're related to these practices so one of the most famous ones that i know many of you have heard before is the image of a dog chewing a bone 
that a butcher gives, but there's no meat on the bone. It's just a bone. And the idea is that the dog is doing two things. One, trying to find nourishment, which it can't get. So it might have a positive experience. The chewing might be fun. In the case of a dog, it might be good for the teeth. But in this case, what we're saying is the dog is seeking nutriment and there's no meat to be found, but the dog just keeps chewing and just keeps chewing and keeps chewing in anticipation of being full and it doesn't happen. That's how the Buddha describes this overindulgence or dependence on sensual pleasures. Another one uh, that he talks about is a bird that has a piece of meat or a worm in its mouth and it is defending it from other birds that are trying to take it. And the idea is that our cravings and our lusting and our longings are not contained to ourselves. That we covet experiences that we long for and we compete with others. And we do harm to ourselves and others to make sure we get that which we are lusting after. That we get what we are coveting. So the, the idea here is that lust in this broad sense that the Buddha talks about it is not harmless. We compete for the objects that we're lusting after. There's this amazing image that's kind of haunting, really. And the Buddha describes humanity as a whole as a shallow pond filled with fish that are striving for the last bits of food, not realizing that there's just not enough. Like there's just, it's all, they're going to die essentially. And they're just trapped in this shallow pond fighting over the last bits of food. Human beings fight over our objects of lust. And so that's another image that I think is really powerful. Two others that I'll offer you because I think they're really cool. One is this idea, fire images, as you know, are, are pretty big in the Dharma. And so many, enlightenment is the quelching out of a flame. There's a lot of fire images in, in the Dharma. And for lust, there's this image of a person carrying a torch against the wind. Carrying a torch against the wind and being burned because the wind is blowing the fire onto their hand. And the idea with this image that I really like is that it's not saying there's anything wrong with holding a torch, but when you hold the torch against the wind, you get burned. And the idea here is that sensuality is not condemned in the Dharma, but our use of sensuality, how we crave, how we cling, that is the burning, right? That is the wind that comes towards this torch that we're holding. So it's the way that we relate to the body that causes the suffering. It's the way we relate to the objects of craving or the objects of longing. That's where the dukkha is. It's in the relationship. One last one I'll give you. This one is uh, obviously characteristic of the cultural norm of the time, but this image is of a leper who is sitting by the fire and cauterizing their wound by the fire. And the Buddha says, the cauterizing of the womb brings temporary relief and feels really good, but causes infection. Temporary relief and causes infection. And when the leper is able to actually heal from the disease, they don't want their hand anywhere near the fire. They do not, they're not going to be willingly sticking their hand in the fire. And this image is of someone who is deep 
deeply uh, steeped in the Dharma or an enlightened being, so to speak, who at one point was using sensual pleasures to get momentary joy, but still hurting themselves in the long run. And they suddenly realized, oh, wait, I should probably transcend. I should get out of the suffering. And then I'm never going to want to put myself in that harmful place again. It wouldn't be intuitive or natural for me to put my hand back into the fire. So that's the idea of insight related to sensual craving or lust. So those are the, the typical images that we see in the Pali Canon for some of these images of craving, longing, and lusting related to the body contemplations. So I'm just going to bring this all together, a little summary here. When we're doing our body part meditation, our element meditation, or corpse in decay, it's helpful to know before you do them why you're doing them. And you know I'm a big stickler for the why. I'm always asking students, why are you practicing? What are you seeking to get out of your practice? What is your, what is your view of happiness? And what are you doing? And how are you doing it? Because the more you understand why you're doing it, the much it's so much easier to get benefit out of any particular practice. And the wisdom that arises is so much deeper when we do have a sense of where the practice is going. So when we practice the elements, when we practice anatomical parts, we are automatically asking ourselves, what is the nature of beauty? When we put it all together, we fabricate this sense of beauty. But when you really look at an equal truth, it's just pieces of things, right? It's livers and kidneys and lungs, and none of it is permanent. A person dies and you stick it out in nature and it's food for other beings. And so these images are designed to temper the lust. It's designed to look at the body in a differently truthful way, not designed to shame or make us disgusted. It's just designed to bring a different truth into the world. So that's how those practices tend to work. They decrease lust. They challenge our view of what lust is. It also challenges our view of beauty. Like what is beauty? The hair on the head or the hair in the food, right? One moment it's beautiful, the next minute it's not so beautiful. One moment we are looking at our body as being beautiful or someone walks down the street and we objectify them and we're like, oh, that person's really attractive. When in fact, they are a giant bag of bacteria that's shedding millions of bacteria every hour. But that's not what we, that's not what we do. So next time you're craving or lusting after something, especially a person, your partner or someone else, I think if you're going to be a good Buddhist, you should imagine them as a bag of bacteria and just think of all the bacteria that's being shed and then ask yourself if you're still lusting. And that would be a great meditation. Enlightenment is eminent if you do that, that technique. And I say that as a joke, but that is actually one of the practices to reduce lust is to when you see somebody or you have a fantasy to take a moment to contemplate the person's insides instead of the outsides or to look at them as elements, water, wind, heat. And in doing it, remember, in doing it, in the moment when you're doing the deconstructive practice, you're looking for impermanence. Is this permanent? Is this self? Is there suffering in my longing for this person to be something to me? What is the craving? What is the agitation? So this is just another form, as I said a few weeks ago, of aggregating the world or understanding that the world, yes, 
there is one truth that the world is solid, but yes, the world is also truthfully aggregated and pieces and parts. And part of the clinging and craving is when we forget that it's parts and pieces and we only focus on the whole. We only focus on the label that is an attractive person rather than there walks a spinal cord and feet and toes and bones and hand and muscle. Completely truthful observation of another human being which fabricates a completely different relationship to that person. So those are the um, frameworks I wanted to offer. I did not offer them, I said six months ago when we were doing body from a completely different perspective, but I would leave you with this. If you haven't incorporated these practices into your weekly sits, one thing I did, I was about maybe three years ago now, is I just decided to do all three of the practices once a week. So I sit a couple times a day usually. And so I just filter these in. So one day a week for one of my practices, even if it's just 10 or 15 minutes, I do my anatomy practice. Another day a week, I do the corpse and decay. And another day a week, I do uh, the elements. And I try to do elements during walking meditation. So I would just really encourage you to experiment with these practices and to give them a chance and if they're confusing or they feel awkward, it may not be the right medicine, totally fine. Reach out to me, shoot me an email if you have trouble and you can't seem to get them to work for you because it might just be the way you're approaching it. There's a lot of different creative ways to work these practices. Next week, now that we're actually deep into body, let's do some guided practice and I'll talk about how to fabricate different ways of doing the practices and looking how you can get different wisdom from from the different fabrications that actually occur. So I d definitely want to do that. I thought I was going to do that this week, but I wanted to get all these frameworks out first. So we will do some guided practice and then I'll record those. So you will have them to go back to, and I'll make sure I record all three of the practices and we'll do them like back to back. So we'll do elements. We'll do anatomical parts. We'll move into uh, corpse and decay. So you'll have a whole meditation on, on recording. So you can go back and listen to it. Um, and this will be something you can practice on your own. Thank you for your kind attention, my friends. As always, appreciate your presence. If any of this was triggering, please reach out. I'd be happy to talk to you over Zoom. If you if this if the topic itself is difficult, please do not hesitate to set up a Zoom Zoom tea chat, and we'll we'll work it through with you. We have a few minutes, and I wanted to do a couple things before we uh, move to our evening meta. One, I wanted to share with you something that Doyle shared with me, Doyle Banks, who's a teacher, was a teacher at PIMC, and I know many of us in the room know, know Doyle Banks. And then I wanted to invite Kate to share an insight that she had that she shared with me uh, earlier today that I thought was awesome. So the first thing I, I wanted to do was just share this, Doyle Banks had sent, he sends a newsletter out, um, I think every week or every other week, and he sent this beautiful reflection and he was sick he had covid and he was laying in bed and he was uh watching one of those like talent show shows like america's got talent kind of things and i'm sure some of you may have read his read his uh email so and he it described this incredible situation where this woman had cancer and she got up and sang and it, it was this moment where there was this woman who was actively suffering from, from cancer and still went out on stage and sang this like beautiful song. And it wasn't just that the song was moving, but that at the end of her performance, 
she says this to the judges, which was really profound for me and which is why uh, Doyle had sang it, uh, had shared it, which was, she says, you can't wait for life not to be hard to be happy. You can't wait for life not to be hard to be happy. And man, did that just hit me at the right place in the right time. And I realized that I do spend a lot of my time in life waiting for life to be more stable, like with COVID, for the waiting for things to be different to where then I can feel I can be happy, right? If only this were different, if only that were different, then I could be my happiest self or my truest self. Or, And it just hit me at the right time. So I just wanted to share that with you. I thought it was absolutely lovely. Um, we can't wait for life not to be hard to be happy. We got to just, we have to fabricate the experience because that's what this is all about. So I wanted to thank Doyle Banks for sharing that. It was just, it really struck my heart. And I've been thinking about it, like ever since he sent it out, I'm like, wow, yes. I got to put a note on my computer about that one. Kate, would you be willing to share your insight of the week? I really loved your email that you sent to me. I'm going to, I think you can unmute. I can. Thank you. Well, I don't want to keep you all too long, but I was in meditation the other day and sometimes you get gifts that come to you. And uh, I was just so grateful. I was watching um, my thoughts come and go as they do. And there was just an awareness arose of how often it was the same thoughts over and over and over again. And that a lot of them were negative. A lot of them were old stuff. A lot of them were just very subjective feelings. And I realized how much territory they take up in my consciousness and my awareness. And they don't change anything. They don't make anything better. It's not like, oh, look, you know, this is happening and I can change it. It's like just old stuff coming back and back. And every time you think it, it gets deeper. It's like the groove gets deeper it, it, and it gets less noticed. So it's just there in the background. I guess it occurred to me that if I were able to get rid of that, if I were able to recognize it and stop it, that it would just free up this space in my awareness. And I'm curious about what I might find if I can just like weed my garden of consciousness to pull out all that stuff. And I think it starts with, I'm not sure I said this to you, Gregory, but I think it's kind of like when you do, you can do a practice on feeling where you just start noticing, do I like this? Do I not like this? Am I neutral toward this? And so I've committed to just the practice of noticing when those thoughts that take up so much space come so that I can just start um, having more control over it because you can't control it until you can see it, which is, the, of course, the beauty of meditation. So I'm going to try and catch those repetitive thoughts to see if I can. And not only that, sometimes they, they just reinforce really bad stuff, really subjective bad programming that's in there. So I'm, I'm just going to start the work of seeing if I can find those, if I can notice them, and maybe treat them like right speech. You know, is this true? Is this helpful? <laughs> can I even hear it? You know, so I'm going to clean out my garden and see what seeds might sprout. Thank you, Kate. You're welcome. 
not only did I love your description of that, but, and I didn't, I just texted you back. So I didn't have a chance to say what I was going to say earlier, which is what Kate just described almost to a T is exactly, I mean, literally it is exactly the insight the Buddha had that convinced him that enlightenment was possible. The change in the Buddha's journey that led him to thinking enlightenment can be possible was when he noticed, man, there's a lot of negative crap in here <laughs> that's on a loop. And if I could abandon unskillful thinking and cultivate skillful thinking, what would happen? And that is in the Pali Canon. There is this description of the Buddha saying that the key to him going and actually being enlightened started with him, as Kate was saying, weeding the garden of consciousness, noticing the unskillful thoughts, cultivating skillful ones, and learning to let go and to not cling and to let them evaporate and not take up so much space in consciousness. So I just love when I got that email from Kate. I was like, yes, <laughs> Kate's on her way. It was so, it was very inspiring. So thanks for sharing, Kate. I wanted you to hear Kate's beautiful insight in her own voice. So thanks for that, Kate. <sighs> All right, my friends, we are at time. Thank you so much for your participation. This is lovely. Next week, we will do some guided sits and we will record those guided sits. And until then... If you need to leave, thank you so much for Sangha. Otherwise, we can do a few minutes of meta and we'll send you on your way. <sighs> Let us see what these bags of bacteria feel like in this moment after 90 minutes of awareness. Take a few long, deep breaths. Let's get back into this body. Bringing embodied being back into consciousness. Noticing how it feels. Noticing its shape and form. Noticing that you are taking up space in this world. Let us thank ourselves for the practice of this evening. The choice to be here tonight created our experience. Sangha means showing up, and tonight we all chose to do so. We co-created, we fabricated Sangha. We fabricated an opportunity for wisdom and joy, and the possibility of healing and well-being for everyone in this room. Let us be grateful to all who are present tonight. May they all be well.
And let's extend that sense of gratitude. Extend our sense of desire and wish for all beings to be free and extend that energy out. Let us offer some gratitude to the planet itself. The air we breathe, the food we eat, the homes we take shelter in. Gratitude for this existence. May the planet be free from harm. May the earth and all beings upon it be well. And let's conclude tonight by asking ourselves my favorite question. In this moment, if you could wish anything for all beings, and know this wish would come to pass, what would you wish for in this moment with each breath? Take care, my friends. Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com and click on donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.